0: Time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcasting app to listen anytime. Now, here's your host, Diane Jenks.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. Over the past 12 plus years, we've spoken with many frame builders. And today we have the privilege of speaking with an American builder who has been living and working in Italy for several decades. Darren Crisp didn't start out as a frame builder. In fact, he has a degree in architecture. He decided he wasn't such a great architect and began building very exclusive stores for an Italian company. But there's a lot more to the story about how he became a frame builder and why he's living in Italy, and I'll let him tell it. I caught up with Darren in between his usual shop time and home time, which are separate and the same. Hi, Darren. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest today. How's Italy?
2: Italy's wonderful. It's it's almost dark here, so uh, we've got some cloudy cloudy weather. We've been been raining for three days. So we've been riding in the rain. Um, lots of uh, warm winter clothes, getting them out, trying to find them all over again uh, for the for the season. So doing all right. Can't complain.
1: Do you guys do daylight savings time over there or no?
2: Yes, we do. Oh yeah. you do. Oh, yeah, actually I that's the it's the worst part of the year for me because when it happens it's just so abrupt and it just kind of makes me think about cold and you know being a Texan I'm I'm uh, you know kind of prone to the to the warm weather and Italians like to complain about the hot weather but They've never seen hot weather here.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> no, they have not.
2: <laughs> yeah. So when, when the light changes and you know, you have to put a fire in the fireplace. It's kind of like, you know, for, for me, it's kind of uh the tough, the toughest part of the season, but it's it's good because it might it makes
1: you appreciate the sunshine. That is true. That is so true. So let's yeah. start with your background. I think it's interesting, it's different from many of the frame builders I've spoken with over the years. Where did you grow up? Obviously, we were talking Texas a moment ago, and then. Find out how cycling became the thing, because that's not where you started out.
2: Yeah. The, um, well, I, I was born in Houston, Texas, um, 1970, so I'm 52, and uh, I moved around the South a bit. Both of my parents were were government uh, workers, so we had uh, kind of the government move around. As a young adult, I lived in Houston, and then we moved to uh, D.C. in Virginia, outside of D.C., and uh, lived there for seven years and then moved down to the south again back to Jackson Mississippi because they were opening a field office for my dad's employer and then uh, from there I moved back to Texas and that's when I started uh, finished high school in in Houston again and then that's where I went to Texas A&M University when I graduated.
1: And you actually graduated with a degree in architecture which is very interesting.
2: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's one of those things where you always think you're going to be, uh, you know, you have these ideas of what you're going to be and then life throws you a whole bunch of other stuff and, and nothing ever really turns out the way you planned. So yeah, the, the idea was to get into architecture, but then, you know, I, I found out that I, I wasn't really a good architect uh, at some point during that path. And I realized that some of my strengths were in taking other people's ideas. Um, at that time, it was commercial construction. And making them actual you know physical physical products so i got into commercial construction when i came back to italy on an international level and that that really gave me a lot of experience with working with you know fascinating people smart people uh, a lot of uh, economic resources for the types of work that i was doing so i didn't have a whole lot of limits as to you know the the type of materials i was using the type of tooling if i needed to buy a specific machine to get a job done. I had a a large company backing me. So there was a lot of, a lot of resources, but it was also when you're young, you're also, you're young and dumb. And so you make a lot of foolish choices. And, uh, and so I, I kind of stayed in that business probably a little bit longer than I should have, but, you know, it's one of those things where you look back and you realize that everything, everything has value. And so even even those tough those tough years uh, that were learning experiences gave me the tools that I need to be where I am today. And, you know, s- some of the tools, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of picking up along the way, you know, you think you get to a point where, oh, you got it figured out and then you realize, no, you, ne- you never have it figured out when life throws you something unexpected. So it's been a ride, that's for sure, but I wouldn't change it. It's been there's some, there's some moments in there that were difficult, you know, I've had two back operations, I've had, uh, you know, prosthetics, uh, surgeries, I had litigation with a hospital in Italy, lawsuits with my former employers, um, and all kinds of things that, you know, go along with that. Um, But, you know, it's kind of like, uh, reinforces the fact that I'm Enjoy working by myself. (laughs) So, (laughs)
1: okay, that's not unusual for frame builders. (laughs) Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Darren Christ. He's in Italy and he builds titanium frames. We will talk about that work in a moment, but I want to know let's weave some cycling into the conversation. Uh, You did race for a while. Did you race on a team?
2: Yeah, I did. I raced for, uh, it was a, well, I started mountain bike racing. I got into the, I kind of, just surpassed your question but i was uh i was always a tinker as a child with with the bikes and i always wanted to make my bike as good as the uh the the schwinn scramblers that my friends had um, but i was i was riding an amf roadmaster which was basically a banana seat you know 1970s bike and uh you know getting that up to par i would you know take parts off and rebuild and um you know go to the thrift store or the discount store and, and buy you know take off the banana seat and put on a you know a rear uh you know BMX So I started, I had the I had the urge as a young child, but then as uh as I got into school, I kind of rediscovered, you know, as as most people do, they kind of abandon their their child uh toys as they grow up. And then I kind of rediscovered it when I got into uh into college uh because I was riding my bike to school and I bought a cheap mountain bike just to get back and forth from I lived off campus and uh I started racing the, the buses. Um my roommate would take the bus to school. And I would race in architecture school on my bike, and I was getting there earlier and quicker than he was. And then so he bought a bike, and then we started riding, and then that just kind of led, you know, one thing leads to another, and you, you you catch the bug.
1: You sound like breaking away there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. chasing the buses.
2: <laughs> yeah, I started I started mountain mountain bike racing um, in the in the early '90s, and then I was racing for. Um, I, just a, a little, I mean, I got to, I think it was Norba at that point. I, And I don't even remember these, that's been so long ago. It was right. Norba and you start off in a, I think an open class and then you go to sport and then you go to expert. And I was racing, you know, my last race, I was racing on the same team as Tinker Juarez, but I was not at his level. I was like on the level lower than him. So I was just like, he would lose me while I was warming up. He was, you know, he was warming up too. And I couldn't keep up with him going at full speed. So it was like, you start to realize your place in life and the racing scene, and and uh, so I yeah I did some I did uh, mountain bike racing I did and that got me into road racing because I was training for my mountain bikes I started meeting road riders, and they were telling me oh if you're gonna if you're gonna be competitive on the mountain bike you've got to get on the road so I started training with a road team, um, and then that was when I realized well there are no bikes n- near, you know in any stores near me where I could actually fit on a bike that that fits and and I I started to kind of dive into the the making a bike, that that whole world.
1: Yeah. So you're six foot three and that does have its uh, limitations in terms of production bikes. Um, My husband's six two. He also builds bikes. He builds steel bikes, but Uh, uh, as opposed to titanium, but I certainly as a bike fitter, which I've been doing since the eighties understand that there's a lot of limitation in production bikes not just on height, but in a whole lot of things. So yeah, you have a really unique perspective. So let's talk a little bit about geometry. I know it's kind of jumping to another topic, but it's one that I have um, a really obvious interest in. And Mm -hmm. that is, how do you work out your geometry for your clients? Um, Obviously you're building bikes in Italy, but my assumption is right or wrong that you're shipping them all over the world.
2: Yeah, I I rarely meet my my clients, m- most of the Italians and maybe some vacationing clients, they'll come in, you know, for the fit or you know, vacation. It, it's a long process, so it's not something that happens quickly. So these are relationships that that you build over months and then they continue over years. Um and my, you know, every project is nuanced because you're you have to kind of deal with the the orders that come in and their experiences you know i can't i can't have the same kind of uh dialogue with maybe someone in malaysia as i have uh, with someone in texas you know based on their writing experiences and where they're writing and what their objectives are so i kind of start off with a clean slate and start an archive for each customer and i've kind of developed over over the years a Kind of a protocol that works for me. And it's something that I, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with when I started out, because when I start, when I came to Italy, that's when I really got into the, the custom bikes and I started going to the bike shows and I met the Italians and I was trying to learn how they were doing it, but they were coming from a place of experience where they were training with, uh, with professional teams. Um, they would have, you know, build out the whole team's bikes. They would have the feedback from the team at the end of the year. And then they would, you know, in, uh, improve the, the bike's For those specific cyclists over the year and they start kind of a database for each cyclist and they could learn from each from each occasion so i don't have that that luxury um and basically i I started to realize that well i'm gonna have to kind of create my own experiences with the customers and get the feedback from them of where i screw up and um how how i can improve on that and so when i started working with uh as a business in italy i had some Relationships with some local frame builders who were built for professional teams at the time. This was in the you know early 90s, and they would help me kind of define my my way of doing things because I didn't have that possibility. I couldn't I couldn't build out for professional teams because the the markets were changing and you know the big companies were coming in and they were just supplying teams with all these bikes and so I couldn't I couldn't kind of create that that experience and I'd have to learn how to how to do geometries kind of the hard way where. You know, I build a bike, uh, someone would come to me with, uh, uh, you know, the bike fittings are, are are really important, especially here in Europe. I'm not sure how it is in the States, but I kind of, I think it's kind of a similar kind of scenario where you have a customer who comes in with, uh, you know, with a bike fit uh, retool or here in Italy, there's Mape, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of local fitters. And they would bring me these uh, these uh, spec sheets to build out the frames, and I would start building. My first couple of years, I would just kind of build build. You know, the, this is Mop Bay. They're doing you know Tom Bonin's bike and you know uh, Museo's uh, you know uh, professional bikes. And so, who am I to argue with these guys? And so, I would you know build these bikes uh, to these specs, and then over over time. Um, I would get some feedback oh yeah well um you know my back hurts and you know i can't stay in the saddle for more than two hours and then i started to kind of analyze these uh with some of these other kind of professional builders who were helping me realize well yeah my pay will give you the uh the max watt output at 74 degrees um and then so that's what they would print out for the client. And the client brings that to me and I would just kind of automatically build that because I never, I never doubted that. And then you realize, well, yeah, if you're putting out a max watt, but you're doing a, you know, a, a cycle sportif or a, a randonnée that lasts six, eight, eight hours in the saddle, or you've got a stage race that's, you know, 10 days long, it's unsupported. Your max watts don't really matter. And 75 degree seat angle, is not going to work for that. So you kind of develop your theories and your, and, and you kind of, uh, reduce everything down to, you know, first principles. And where I start where I start now is I, I see what they're writing. I see what their experiences are. I see where their limitations are. I do, you know, video analysis, uh, photographic analysis, questionnaire. I basically send out a, a kind of a PDF file. It's about 10 pages and it's got a bunch of questions and I ask for documentation. And over the months, they'll send that in because it's kind of a process. And I'll analyze that um, you know, use once it or, once or twice during the week and then start to build this dialogue with them. And you kind of get the feel of how much experience they have, how much they're willing to commit to uh, warm up before they get on the bike, what kind of cycling, whether they're, you know, doing serious training races for an Ironman or whether there's kind of the weekend warrior. So you kind of have to take that into consideration. And I've developed my, my geometry based on how much much experience they have and what their objectives are and try and meet them kind of halfway because i don't want to propose something that's going to require them to make a lot of sacrifices in their day to 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 get prepared and they might have a you know an eight-hour day job where they're sitting at a desk and then you know i'm trying to make a geometry that's for them to sit in a saddle you know saturday and sundays for three or four hours a day you have to kind of find out what those compromises are and how far they're willing to go to meet you in that design so i try not to To put too much into it uh, where the Italians, you know, the old Italian uh, frame builders would say, you do it like I say you're going to do it and that's it. Um, But then you start to realize that that has its limitations. So I kind of find a balance between kind of old school and new school.
1: Really interesting. Really interesting. I don't
2: know if I answered your question, but no, you did. No, <laughs>
1: you did. You know, you don't have the luxury of having somebody sitting in your simulator. You're, you know, we use one of the Serata size cycle things, and 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 get that feedback instantaneously, so that you can build that design. So you need to do it in a much more comprehensive, but sort of absent way. And it makes sense exactly what you're saying. Let me ask you something about building out of titanium. It's a wonderful material. I love it. Uh, and, and we do a lot of mostly steel now. Did you find that titanium was a better material because of the way you build bikes or what made you move from, let's say, steel and aluminum into tie?
2: Yeah, well, I never really got into lumen. I started off with steel um, okay. and I was doing I was doing lug construction because this when I started, this was my first frames were in 90, 1995. And at that time titanium wasn't even an option i was living in mississippi and i was racing and and you know this was before the internet so i was uh i was trying to figure out how to make i was i was getting the velo news you know on sunday and you know reading the back trying to figure out where i could get a tube set from and i had the tools where i worked to make a bike but i didn't know how to make a bike so i actually um had the talbot manual which is a kind of a, a classic you know at that time internet was just getting started and there were there were some chat boards and bulletin boards and uh, I remember being on there with you know Richard Sachs would help me you know try and figure out how to get started and some other of uh, these, uh, these you know really helpful builders at the time um, so I just kind of pieced, pieced my first frames together and then moved into titanium uh, when I was in New York I was working on uh, this is actually about the, the the time exactly the time when the twin towers happened, but I was actually in New York before um, before September, working on a project, and I had uh, I had some time when the twin towers happened that my job site was shut down. So all of the all of our contract I was there with an Italian company, so all of our contract workers came back to Italy. All of the um, union labor was there, um, went to ground zero and I couldn't, I couldn't stick around. So I had to leave. So I went to UBI and that was where I built my first titanium frame with, uh, with Ron and, uh, Jim Kish, uh, and Mike DeSalvo were there giving me my first instructions. And that was just like, I fell in love right there. It's just like, I knew, I knew kind of how to TIG weld, you know, I was do, I was mostly doing stainless steel, uh, from my commercial job. So I had, good experience with the TIG welder, but I had never done any real titanium welding besides just some, some one-off kind of furniture stuff. And so that kind of sealed the deal as far as like, oh, I can do this. And so I came back and then it was just like, well, I got all my suppliers, I got all the tools. Um, And then I started kind of doing it as a side project. And then word kind of got out over here in Europe that I was doing a lot of uh repairs. And so like some of the the big name titanium companies would start sending me work uh just kind of because it was cheaper for them to send it to me than it would to try and do a warranty claim on the other side of the ocean and so i started getting you know started seeing where all the bikes were breaking uh, at someone else's behest and started learning about design and that kind of informed some of my my design protocols and then. And over time, it just became, uh, you know, something that, you know, I made my own, my own bikes and I started racing them. Then I started making them for friends. And that's, you know, the typical frame builder story. You know, you, you give them to your whole family until, you know, they all you know take up another sport. And then uh, I was left with the titanium bikes and uh, got a lot of experience doing the repairs. And then people just kept asking. And then I had a point at work where it was basically a, a breaking point mentally physically and uh you know when i was 40 that's when i just i was like screw it i'm out of here and so yeah 2004 was actually when i started my business as a professional registered business in italy um but i had started around 2001 uh making the titanium bikes um and then from 2001 until 2004 i was like I could just just stop working and make bikes. Um but that wasn't really like a plan. It wasn't it wasn't, you know, I, I loved it as a hobby and it was so so much fun and you race and races with people that are on your bikes and you know you're you're on your own bike that you build and you know coming from frame builders yourselves, you know the 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 ecstasy of getting to the top of the hill on a bike that you made uh and on the wheels that you assembled and that and then you get to that point where he's like that's the best and then someone passes you on a bike that you made for them. And then they kind of take the torch and you, you kind of realize, well, there's more, there's more here to it than just me. And that then it kind of like, kind of opened up my, my idea. Well, this could actually be a business where people are asking me for these things. And, and, you know, is it viable? And so I actually turned it into a, a business plan. And I, there was a, a contest here in the local province on the larger town here. There's a, a Arezzo, which is about 20 kilometers away. I won this, contest for a business plan uh, and they were offering us business consulting um as a as a prize and so I won this prize and they're like yeah it's big fanfare you know let's start the business we got this great business And it's actually like such an Italian traditional business but I won it because it was a new innovative business because it was titanium <laughs> but if you think about it it's kind of it's ridiculous but uh, that's how the business started is in in 2004 there was a lot of a lot of uh, reasons for me to, to just break off from my old uh, my old uh, career and, and start something new. I, I had just basically had a nervous breakdown and just couldn't I couldn't handle the travel anymore. I had two kids, um, you know, wife, and I didn't see him because I was traveling, you know, three months at a time. Um, and, you know, it was just getting to a point where when you're young and and, you know, by yourself, those are those are fun experiences. But I got to a point where I was traveling with 10 to 12, 15 people that didn't really care about the work and you know you have a lot of responsibility and no one seemed to be as excited about the job as I was and so I was realize, I realized that I was building someone else's dream and I was building I was building with people that didn't care about the dream they were just you know they you get to New York and then you know the t- the 10 guys that you take over there they've never been out of the country before and then you know that one has a drug problem and then that one has a gambling problem and then you don't see them for a week and you've got you know those are those are big projects where if you don't get, if you don't get the job done, you get, you know, a, a fee of, you know, 20 grand a day, and these are $90 million stores, and they're not playing around, and, you know, I ended up, as kind of like herding, herding cats uh, on a job site, and <laughs> I just got fed up with it, and, uh, and it was good while it lasted, and and I just got out and started, started bike, do the doing the bikes in my garage, and that lasted for seven, eight years, and then uh, at some point, you know, my, my wife, uh, and I kind of agreed that having all the cyclists in our living room uh, and you know tracking through taking measurements probably wasn't the best thing for them as well as ourselves. And you know I had the guest room and then I had the laundry room and then I had you know my second daughter. And we, I kept losing my my bicycle rooms. And then I was like, all right, well I'm going to have to build a place where the cyclists can come and we can discuss and I can show them the work and take the measurements. And so I built the shop and I've been in the shop now for uh,
1: over ten or twelve years lose count. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the bikes themselves and uh, how you feel about certain things. I always ask frame builders the same kind of questions. And then a little bit more about you. We're talking with Darren Crisp. He's in Italy. He builds beautiful titanium frames. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We'll be right back. We are back on the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm speaking with frame builder Darren Crisp. He's in Italy. We're in the US and uh, it's just like you're right next door. It's really kind of cool. So awesome. <laughs> we, we were talking about you getting to Italy and then building your shop. And so I want to know, are you building complete bikes? Uh,
2: at the moment, I am uh, subbing out the build out. Um I did I had a, a gentleman with me, professional mechanic with me. He actually is a store owner uh, for six years. He was doing that work. Um, but just because when you do the bikes, especially as a, a one-man show, you have to really concentrate on the business at hand. And for me, the frame building and the geometry and the customer relationship was the business at hand and the components, especially in Italy, is uh is a kind of a, a difficult situation, not Covid, withstanding, um, Italy is a hard place to to run a business. First of all, but also they have a very uh, kind of traditional business s- strategy for the the you know the, the the big three, the Shimano, Campagnolo, and SRAM. They all have uh, what they call the, the representatives, um, and they take a piece of the action, and they're supposed to you know give you some value. And I realized that when I started out my business, no one cared about about me i mean if if my business is actually registered as crisp cycle group not crisp titanium but crisp cycle group because no one would even answer my emails because they don't use emails they didn't use emails it was facts and to and to have someone answer my facts of my bike parts i would have to present myself as a big company and so that went on for a couple of years and then you actually go to the bike shows and when i started going to the bike shows they were in milan this is in you know 2000 and uh they started to realize well hey this guy's actually building some nice bikes and they started sending me you know demo parts and promo parts and uh, you know first run you know bike components before they're out on the market and then you know some of them actually asked me to build them custom bikes for their anniversary edition group sets and things like that so i got quite a bit of notoriety once i got into the bike shows but then after a while the the market kind of changed and now it's like if you don't buy a minimum of you know 10 group sets, um, you know, they don't even they don't even answer the phone. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kind of obligate my clients to use a specific type of group set a lot of them want custom wheels they want the lightweight or they want you know a certain type of uh you know crank uh custom there's a lot of custom work with the the, the builds that i make so i can't just call up you know Shimano or SRAM and say hey can you send me you know the group set with the exception of the uh, the crank and stuff like that so the way they're set up here is also it's not like you can just go to the website the B2B website and just pick out um you know a group set simply. You have to go through every electronic group set with every wire, every length, every article code. And then you get to the end and you realize, well, everything's there except those five pieces there, that those three pieces there, they're coming in two weeks. That one's in coming in five months. And and so you really get to a point where you have to have a huge inventory, um, which I'm not willing to do, um, or you have to kind of sub that work out. So I have professional builders that actually build out my work right now and these are based in in different regions in italy depending on where the clients are and depending on what my needs are so i have some clients who send me send me their stuff you know they're actually fabricators themselves or they have custom parts that they've sourced and they want me to put it on and and i'll i'll have these people uh you know put it put it on the bikes and do all of the the setups themselves um but i i don't have time for that i have to titanium and the the preparation and production you know these are you know, structural, uh, uh, transportation devices. You know, if someone gets on a bike, uh, their life depends on it. And, you know, if I have to sit here and concentrate on, you know, answering the phone to get, uh, you know, a handlebar or pedals for someone and I'm not watching what I'm doing, you know, that's, that takes away from the quality of the work I'm doing. So I kind of, I like to narrow everything down into simple things that I can handle. And the bikes have gotten so complex these past few years that, um, I don't have time for that.
1: It's so interesting to hear you say all of this, because, of course, I live it every single day. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> and sure. and I don't think people understand what's happened since the time when you could just spec a group. It comes in and you put it on the bike. It's just not like that anymore. And it is so complicated, especially with the electronic stuff. So. Tell me about your your breakdown of, of the models you're building, road versus gravel versus versus mountain, suspension, non-suspension. What is it that most people are asking? For? I, I already know most people are asking for a quote unquote gravel, which to me is like just an adventure bike, go out and ride, you know, it, right, it's right. an all road. But, but tell me hmm. what your breakdown is. What does it look like at Chris?
2: Yeah, right now it's about 60, 40. I actually stopped taking orders from mountain bikes um, back when the 650Bs came in um, because I was actually, I was doing everything one-offs um, and there were probably ways to do, you know, a run a 10 or run a five to kind of make things faster, but it wasn't, it wasn't conducive to the way I, I like to work. So everything was one-off. So the the mountain bikes kind of were suspended for about 10 years. And I concentrated on road bikes. And now the road bikes with the electronics and the disc brakes and everything have become so much more complex that it's easier for me to build a mountain bike than it is for a road bike. And so now I've kind of reintroduced the mountain bikes into the orders. I'm taking orders from mountain bikes, but the breakdown is really 60-40 with the mountain bike starting to come in now with a real small percentage, you know, just onesies and twosies for the mountain bikes. But um, it's mostly, I'd say 60% road, 40% gravel with the, with the gravel increasing everything. What, what, what I, I notice clients are trying to do is they're trying to solve uh, a lot of problems with one bike. So they'll want a road bike, but they want to be able to get, uh, you know, 42 max tires in there or 47 or whatever. And, and you kind of start, well, okay, yeah, you can get that tire in there, but then you have to kind of explain the compensation with the geometry and the wheelbase and the gearing and all of those things that it sounds real simple in theory, But then you want the client to be, that's your, that's your, um, your, your, uh, sorry, my my English is not so good today. That's your, uh, um, they're doing your marketing for you. So you want them to be happy. And you don't want to give them a product that's not going to satisfy their needs, but you have to, to temper their needs with expectations. So they're trying to fit everything that's bike. You kind of have to say, OK, well, if you want this, but you want these wheels, these are the compensations. You're going to have to make some modifications to the steering angle, the wheelbase, uh, you know, the gearing and things like that to give you everything you need. But there's going to be some trade-offs, and those, you know, those come at a price and try and, and just kind of be as transparent about that as possible.
1: So I I have a question, you already alluded to it, that you are building road bikes accommodating disc brakes. How do you feel about that?
2: Well, I had a, um, (laughs) I had so many conversations, like the philosophical conversations about it. And the best, the best one uh, I heard back was like, well, basically, um, you know, rim brakes and disc brakes are the same thing. It's just a different diameter.
1: Um, and I, that's the, bu- pardon my expression. <laughs> that's the bullshit
2: answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, yeah. But I, I like simple my, the, and that kind of brings its lends itself to, to titanium just because titanium is, is not difficult. It's a very easy material to, to work with. It welds great. You can't skip anything, but it's real easy. I mean, I, I was making these things in my garage for 10 years. Everyone, you know, who's, who's tried it has got, had some success. Um, but you realize that um, that palette is limiting. Um, and so the, the disc brakes for me was something that required an enormous amount of time. And, and that's kind of moved me into the 3D printing where I'm trying to uh, add some some technology into the work to actually make it worthwhile because the disc brakes out of titanium where you're buying parts from Paragon, you're buying you know kind of standard parts that require a lot of welding those actually uh, influence the way the, the tubes are shaped and it influences the the structural integrity of the frame. And so you start to realize, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing all this welding on the left side of the frame and that's probably not the best thing. And then they want the internal, uh, you know, cable routing. And and so you start making penetrations, you start uh, doing a lot of uh, structural changes and you, you start to kind of realize, well, okay, that's probably not the best thing. So, you know, this breaks is, it's coming. It's kind of like the electronic stuff. I, I, I was, you know, when the electronic components came out, I did the first Campagnolo group uh, electronic group and I sent it to bicycle magazine and they did their 50 hour test. And, and I was like, all right, that's, I, I think I see that as a, a segment of the market. And I didn't really think that it was going to kind of catch on as much as it did. neither. Did Yeah. And, you know, silly me um, live and learn. And then you realize, well, okay, now you have to, plug your bicycle in. And that kind of changes the philosophy of the bicycle, much like the disc brakes, Um, you know, coming from mountain bikes, I didn't have a hard time moving disc brakes onto a road bike because it was kind of second nature for me, but the electronic stuff has been something that, you know, I used to go through with my clients. Now I don't really do that anymore because it's become just, you know, typical market market dynamics, but they would not even think about why they wanted electronic brakes or why they want disc brakes. And so like I, I, I like to get into why why decisions are made by the cyclist because it makes them think about why they want something. A lot of it is just, you know, here it's fashion and you gotta look different and have something different and have the latest. And I, I can appreciate that. But I also want my clients to be educated. I want them to make educated decisions on why they want something because I want them to be happy at the end of the at the end of the process. And so when they come with me, come to me with with decisions that are already made and you can kind of kind of sense out that they're kind of haphazardly made decisions I kind of like to to eke out those those motives and try and figure out through the dialogue how they got to that and and you know a lot of them changed their mind halfway through the project and I'm um, you know I'm, I'm all up for that the, the the scope is just to have them you know, happy with the product when it's done. So I don't, you know, you try and resist when things come about. You try and understand if it's, uh, if you're adding value to the product, whether it's electronic groups or disc brakes. And um, I find the disc brakes on the road bike are nuanced. There's a lot of, there's a lot of problems that are, they're still trying to work out. You know, the heat buildup, the sound, the, the noise, uh, maintenance, um, internal routing, all kinds of things that I think the market is still trying to work out. Um, but you know, that's the thing about being a custom builder. You can, you can build whatever needs to be built.
1: Well, and then you're overbuilding the fork and you're, I mean, there are a lot of things that have to change that the customer doesn't necessarily, or the client, I should say, doesn't necessarily understand. Um, but your comment about an educated consumer really hits home. You know, people come in with preconceived ideas and when you start talking to them, and explaining some of the things that you have to do or some of the things they haven't thought about. For example, I want wide tires. Well, do you want wide tires and fenders? And they're like, well, no, I'll never need fenders. Best story ever is the guy who takes his bike home after he absolutely said, I don't need fenders to only find out, oh, I want to ride in the winter. Can I get fenders? So, you know, I think your, your approach is excellent. Excellent. One last question about the bikes, and then I have some personal questions for you. Approximately, and you can say, I don't want to tell you, that's okay. How many frames are you producing a year? And where are your clients coming from?
2: Yeah, well, the... I kind of like to give averages because I have okay. some, some people that like to make calculations and assume things. And
1: uh, I, good uh, point.
2: It's, it's, it's well under 50 frames a year. Well under 50 frames. Most of my clients are, I'd say about 40, 40% are European. And then uh, the rest pretty much well, I'm getting a large, a, a large interest in the far East now. Um, and I think that's because I, I, I started, selling one or two bikes uh, over in Malaysia and China and have some, some, some nice relationships going on there. Um, but, you know, numbers for a, a a one-off guy is not, you know, like when I say, Oh yeah, so I'm in the far East now that could be like two frames and it makes it sound like it's some big industry, but it's actually, you know, I'm just my, the the the, the market dynamics are changing. The demographics of my clients are changing a little bit and that, and that's nice because it helps me kind of grow as a builder too. I'm learning new new uh, experiences, what, what they do for riding, you know, places where I've never heard about a lot of, a lot of people in Australia now asking for, for information. Um, so, you know, it's, and they, and those are my, those are my, you know, making those customers happy are the, are the ones that give me the repeat customers because they go out with the, you know, the group ride and, um, you know, their friends see it and they, they, Tell them a good story and that's how you know business keeps keeps moving so word of
1: mouth that is yeah. how it works so yeah. I, have, I have a few personal questions not necessarily about bikes how's your italian it's probably gotten very very good
2: yeah well i'm i mean i've been here for 30 so i've been here i've lived in italy more than i've lived in america so. wow
1: okay i hadn't realized that so you fluent italian
2: oh yeah well my my kids uh you know when they were three years old they were already making fun of my my grammatical mistakes um <laughs> So, yeah, no, I, um, I I learned the Italian with my commercial construction work, and that was difficult uh, because Italy is based in, you know, they have different regions. And so each region has its own dialect. And so I'm fortunate enough to be in, in uh, near Florence, which is considered, you know, Florentine is considered the most pristine uh, Italian, so to speak. But I worked with groups from Naples, uh, from the Veneto region. Um, so you, all of these dialects—they actually change the the not only the pronunciation, but also the the calla cadenza, which is the the way the the, fl- the flow of their dialogue. So you have to like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very dynamic language, and and uh, it's been you know a long process, and it's never you never get to a point where, oh, I got it, I got this figured out. Like I'm still learning, you know, conjunctive. Uh, you know, grammatical. Uh, my wife is uh, has a degree in literature, so you can imagine I get the corrections, uh, which is I'm I'm thankful for because it makes me sound less like an idiot when I'm trying to write an email. But um, the hardest the hardest part was the telephones. I I remember when I started working uh, professionally, I was so scared of uh, talking on the phone. But you know, I had to talk with architects and builders all over Italy, and they would they would use their their local dialect and I had a hard time understanding you know a dialect that I hadn't had a whole lot of experience with but then because I'm I'm counting on the you know reading the lips and uh, you know that whole the, the the Italian way of speaking is very very dynamic with the hand motions and things and you can get you can get a lot of what they're talking about actually without without hearing them <laughs> so <laughs> you don't have that opportunity on the phone but it was a long process and you never get you never get to where you feel comfortable but yeah I've been here thirty something years so. I'm, I'm not learning a whole lot. Also, <laughs> plus I'm getting old, you know, once you get old, you, you don't want to learn anything.
1: <laughs> I'm done. I get yeah, it.
2: When, when you can communicate basic right. skills, you know, feed me. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Oh, food. Right. So I'm going to get to that. What kinds of things are you doing when you aren't building bikes and don't say riding bikes?
2: No, no, I'm, um I'm riding, you know, just, just enough to keep, keep in shape. But um. I uh I'm also a competitive tennis player uh uh-huh. I do I've played Federation tennis so um I also string rackets string tennis rackets um I've actually strong rackets for professionals uh you know I've, it's kind of like I'm a technical like I like to get into the uh, understanding how things work so when I got into tennis um that was just kind of a fluke I, I did it because I'd done it when I was a kid and one of my friends asked me to play and I got into it and it's was just like well all of my all of my sports running and cycling is all those are all you know forward motion sports and i didn't have a whole lot of lateral motion sports and i realized that some of my muscles weren't up to par and tennis was brought that out of me so it kind of gave me some gave me some uh initiative to get into into tennis and that you know that's a whole nother rabbit hole when you start going into stringing rackets and and that kind of stuff but tennis is another passion um I got into uh, making beer. Uh, I'm a beer lover. My wife is in the wine industry, so she's a woman of culture. Where I'm kind of like <laughs> the, of the Texas, you know, the, the 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 other end of the spectrum. Um, and so, you know, it's just. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to do, you know, when you get outside the bikes, but having your own business, as you're aware of, can't just close up the door and go in the house. You know, after dinner, I have people, you know, emailing me, uh, you know, WhatsApp messages. I I have to turn the phone off, you know, at some point and uh, define those family moments and business moments. And some people, some people don't, don't, realize that you're a you're a you know a husband or a father and you're just the bike guy and you're accessible at all times and i actually live on a road where you know the george Italy passes here frequently and this is a big cycling road a uh, beautiful road where i'm fortunate to live on and uh so i have a lot of cyclists just coming by the house and it could be a sunday morning it could be a sunday night no there's no <laughs> there's no limits on who's going to show up so um you know it's uh, it's interesting. You know, Italy's, uh, yeah, Italy's a uh, interesting place. Just for someone who was like, I had never had that cycling culture, and to, to come where it is the cycling culture is uh, is just it blew my mind, and still still does. You know, now it's kind of like you, you, you know, after being in the, in the business for a while, you start to, you know, to get to get used to it. But it's something that when I go home to Texas or to the U.S., it's it's a completely different world there.
1: I'll bet. How old are your kids now?
2: Well, my oldest daughter is 17 and my youngest is 13. Wow. Oldest, yeah, she's in high school. She's actually doing this year. She's in Texas in high school. So having to suffer without her around the house um, and my youngest daughter is here and I'm fortunate enough to see here. That's that's one of the reasons I built my shop at home, because when I realized that I was missing my family life um, uh, the only solution for me was to, to work at home. And I, and I, that's why I started working in my garage and then I built out the shop after, you know, 10 years. So I could actually have an excuse to always be here. So I take her to school every day and pick her up every day and, nice. Uh, I' as as involved as I can be um uh, you know that's uh but, you know two girls too I, I come from you know a male family so I'm, i have a brother and you know having two girls is a nice nice change of pace of, I like
1: we like girls here I have yeah. a, I have a daughter anyway so <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite food uh
2: Italian food Italian any food,
1: food. no what oh, okay is-
2: well well Mexican food is my absolute favorite um, well, there you go. I have, uh, I've become well-known in the area for my margaritas. Um, so I have, uh, Oh, now
1: there's a food group all by itself. (laughs) That
2: is, yeah, that's a, that is a meal. Um, so I've got, uh, been where I worked on that for a number of years and got to a point where I could, I could, uh, take that to, to parties. People actually asked me to come to parties with my margarita kit. Um, so I actually can bring, bring a dinner party, uh, uh, ensemble with margaritas and uh, all the fixings. Um, Mexican food is my favorite uh, barbecue, obviously from Texas. But as far as Italian food, uh, I have to say that I like uh, what what is called a tagliata, which is uh, basically it's a steak. It's a real uh, kind of a lean cut lean, lean kind of steak. Uh, and it's um, very simple. You know, Italians don't, they don't like sauces and they don't put a lot of you know, flavorings. It's mostly salt and pepper, um, maybe some rosemary, that kind of stuff. But the tagliata uh, with pepe verde with green peppers is uh, the, the, the little kind of caper-sized peppers, um, peppercorns. Um, that to me is like the simple because it's really good, good flavor. Um, the, the beef here's locally where I live is excellent. So very simple, very simple type of cooking, which is kind of it shows that the quality of the food, which is something that, you know, now when I go home and you, you, you taste the pasta, you can tell that the pasta is made with a different kind of flour. You can tell that the tomatoes are matured in a different way. Um, you know, it's just, it gives you a whole different appreciation for, for the, the simplicity of food. Um, and so it's been, everything about living here is kind of eye opening, and it's not all, you know cappuccinos and caviar dreams as they say there's a there's a lot of difficulty for especially for an american living here just because i was kind of born into you know a work ethic and uh certain types of programming uh that that americans have um service oriented and italians are completely different completely different and so that has been one of my hardest Uh, obstacles is realizing my limitations as a, as a person and just trying to force things. And instead of like living how Italians live and it'll be okay and just let it work itself out. Um, I try and, you know, control what I can and you, I realize the more I try and do that, the less I can. And that kind of, that's steering away from the food question, but the food question is always, you know, it's, it's Italians and food is always, uh, topic for discussion, wherever you go, you can talk to, with, uh, with Italians about food and they will, they will teach you about American culinary, uh, history. Uh, they'll teach you about Italian culinary history. There's all kinds of, uh, uh you know, discussions to be had. And so you're never, never short sure on that topic.
1: What kind of music do you like? And do you listen to in your shop or unless you don't keep music on?
2: Oh, no, I have music from the time I get in to the time I leave. Um, I have a wide range of uh, music going from rap, rock, jazz. Um, recently, I've been on a Leonard Cohen, uh, which is something that I, when I was a student, I listened to him because I was with a, a Canadian uh, roommate <laughs> roommate for a while and got into that. And that just kind of opened up a whole nother world. A lot of music. Uh, it depends on what I'm doing. There's there's uh, when I'm doing the the projects and stuff. There's no no dialogue, no uh, no singing. It's mostly instrumental stuff, and that's mostly jazz. When when it's in the shop, it can be anything from you know rap to rock to reggae. Um, just depends on what I'm doing. A lot of welding. I'm kind of specific about the welding music, just because there is kind of a, a subliminal beat going on there and uh i've had some customers ask me to play music while i build their bike so you know i've had people send me you know music to listen to oh and- that's
1: hilarious that's like when yeah. you go into the into the hospital and the surgeon says what would you like to listen to before we put you to sleep and you're never going to hear it anyway <laughs> exactly
2: exactly <laughs> i just got my spotify uh where they did do, they do the end of the year thing and i'm like in the top 1% of spotify listeners so I listen to eighty-eight thousand minutes of music, or some. some oh guy my office.
1: goodness! I think yeah. my I think my husband's well <laughs> on his way. What's your who's your favorite jazz guy or woman?
2: Well, I like Dexter Gordon, uh, John Coltrane. I like trumpet, uh, the Bird, Charlie Parker. Um, wow! Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie. You're uh, an old man. Yeah, well, I listen I listened to a lot of it with a gentleman that I worked with in Mississippi who had it on the shop, and he was an old man back in the you know nineties. And so that kind of stuck with me. And when I hear that music, it kind of takes me to a kind of a peaceful, simple kind of mindset. And there's not, there's not a lot of, you know, dialogue going on in my head. And it kind of fills me with a, a sensation that I can't find in today's music. So like, you know, if I want to get the rage out and, you know, pedal hard, that's one thing. But if you want to feel good and feel kind of peaceful, there's there's a, you know, I like music to to be able to, I can kind of hone that with a with my playlists.
1: Last question before I ask you to tell listeners how to find you, and that is, do you have any pets? Which is near and dear to my heart.
2: Yes, well, right at the moment,
1: uh, I have a
2: uh, cat who uh, was a feral cat. She came up, was in bad shape. I think she got hit by a car, and Aww. yeah, we took her in, and now she is like the uh she owns the, the
1: house. Right. She owns
2: the house and she will she jumps on you as soon as you sit down, she jumps on you and she'll like reach up and paw you on the face if you're not petting her. She'll like make you force you to pet her. Right. We used to have a German shepherd, but he had dysplasia and um he didn't quite make it. I built him a titanium uh cart for his rear, rear hind legs. You? Oh, that's yeah. adorable. That went on for about six months, but there's a whole nother set of complications that go along with that. Yeah. Um, their needs. And uh, so we, that was my, my last uh, kind of big, big, big pet, which is that one hurt the family. So we're trying to, we're trying to discuss another one, but that's going to require some, uh, some changes around the house to keep the perimeter safe for dogs. Because here, if the dog gets out, we have dogs that are kind of neighbor dogs that are they start mixing up. So we're trying to keep it, trying to keep it simple right now. So I, all I have now is cat and a couple of chickens. So we're doing the.
1: Well, that means you get fresh <laughs> eggs. Yeah. 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 All right, Darren. It's just been wonderful talking with you. You know, it's like listening to somebody I've known all my life. Um, <laughs> tell my listeners how they can. Well, that's because it's the same conversations we have here. Like only all the time. So tell my listeners how they can find you and find out more about you and contact you if they're interested in getting a crisp titanium.
2: Yeah, well, thanks. My uh, website is crisptitanium.com. And uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, crisp underscore titanium. Uh, Facebook, I don't, I I try and send the the Instagram stuff to everything. So if it goes to Facebook, it may be a week before I can actually get to Facebook, because I don't have a whole lot of time to to do the social media stuff. Um, But I like to, you know, keep keep my stuff out there so people can see it. Um, So yeah, that's probably the easiest way is just email. I don't I try not to answer the phone just because I can't remember what I talk about with, with clients talk about specific bikes and specific products and group sets and drive trains. And then five minutes later, someone else will call me with a different bike and I can't remember. So everything has to come through the email. So that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. And so, yeah, I appreciate that.
1: Well, it's been awesome talking with you and I hope you have a great holiday. We will probably talk again. You coming back to the States for any shows?
2: Uh, no shows. No, I'm just going to come back for, uh, to see my daughter over Christmas and to visit with the family. Um, uh, they got decimated in Florida with the, with the hurricanes to oh. try and catch up with, uh, with part of the family there and part of the family in Texas and and try and make it a quick visit and, uh, just kind of hang out with family, but, uh, I'm not going to be in around for any bike shows right now. So I hope, I hope I can do that. That'd be nice to make it to an, uh, a bike show in the U S at some point. Cause I got a lot of builders that I've made friends with over the past couple of years that, you know, and with COVID and stuff. And, uh, it's been, it's been nice to talk to them on the, on the, on zoom and stuff and email. And it'd be nice to see them in person
1: right. as well with yourself. So it'd be great. Well, stay well. Thank you so much for talking with me. You have a great afternoon. All right. My pleasure, Diane. Thank you. My thanks to Darren crisp for the great conversation today. Clearly, he's someone who thinks deeply about his work, is easily able to articulate his ideas, and has a broad set of interests. You can find out more at crisptitanium.com and follow him on social media. Thank you for tuning in to The Outspoken Cyclist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Darren today. This episode is dropping on the night before Hanukkah, so for all who celebrate, Eat a latke for me, light the candle, and enjoy the holiday. Next episode, we speak with Patrick Greenwood about his new novel, Sunrise in Saigon. It's a self-discovery story about Jack Kendall as he bicycles through Vietnam. In addition to the story, all the proceeds of the sales of the book go to a helmet program for the children of Vietnam. It's a win-win please remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app. And if you like the show, leave a positive comment too. You can always find show notes, photos, and links at OutspokenCyclist.com. I hope you have a great week. Please stay safe, stay well, and remember there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye.
0: thanks for joining us today on the outspoken cyclist with diane jenks we welcome your thoughts and contributions on our facebook page or visit outspokencyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode we will be back next week with new guests topics conversations and news in the world of cycling subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.